My name's Sebastian Major. Sebastian Major is great. The Tudor's Dynasty podcast. It's a continent podcast. The history of American food. Partial historians. Czar Power. The history of Persia. Wittenberg to Westphalia. Curiosity of a Jar podcast. The Siakla. Pontifax. Tosalus Rankium. Apparently, everyone. At Intelligent Speech. Go to intelligencespeechonline.com to get your tickets. November 4th. It'll be a doozy. This is the Seattle. Supplemental 18. Bond. French Bond. Welcome back, everyone. My name is David Montgomery, and you're listening to The Siècle, a history podcast in the Evergreen Podcast Network, covering France's overlooked century between Napoleon and World War I. In the most recent episode, I explored France's economy during the Bourbon Restoration and the deep recession it suffered in the late 1820s. If you missed that, be sure to check out episode 35, because right now, I'm here to dive deeper into one particular aspect of economic life in the Restoration. Finance. I heard from several of you who were surprised to hear that financial assets represented about 35% of all French wealth in this time, comparable to today. That was not a mistake on my part. France at the time had high levels of inequality, and among the rich who owned most of the wealth, bonds and annuities were very common investment sources. But this seemed like a topic that many of you, as well as me, wanted to learn more about. Well, as it so happens, a friend of the show happens to be a history professor who specializes in Restoration-era financial capitalism. You're about to meet Dr. Tyson Luchter, an assistant professor in modern European history at the University of Cambridge. Tyson studies finance in the period from the French Revolution up through the 1820s, and has a number of published articles, as well as a forthcoming book, on the topic. But you don't have to wait for his book. You can hear from Tyson in just a minute. Before we begin, I want to give a very quick and oversimplified explainer of how bond sales work. This stuff confused me the first time I read about it, and I want to make sure no one is left behind by any of our discussion about French government bonds. In essence, a bond is a sort of commercialized debt. A government or business wants to raise money, so they sell a bond. The bond buyer gives the issuer a lump sum of money. In return, they usually receive regular cash payments. The value of those cash payments is determined by the bond's interest rate. A bond may be issued for a certain length of time, after which the bondholder gets the value of the bond back, or it can be a perpetual bond, where the principal never gets redeemed, but the interest keeps on coming forever. Ideally, the issuer of the bond wants to pay as low an interest rate as they can get away with but set the interest rate too low, and no one will buy it. In this case, the issuer can either offer a higher interest rate, or they can sell the bond at a discount. To understand bond discounts, imagine you have a 5% bond worth 100 francs. This bond pays you 5 francs of interest every year, and thus will take 20 years to make back the initial investment. But now imagine that for whatever reason, there's not much demand for this 100 franc 5% bond. The government still needs the cash, but doesn't want to drive up future expenditures. So, instead of raising the interest rate, it sells this 100 franc bond for 80 francs. It's still a 100 franc bond, so still pays 5% of 100 francs per year, instead of 5% of 80 francs. 
but the bond will only cost 80 francs to buy. In this case, 100 francs is the bond's par value, which stands for parity. It's how much the bond is officially worth. In contrast, the bond's face value is how much it's worth right now on the market. A bond's face value can fluctuate. If bond traders begin to think an unstable government is likely to default on its debt, they could start demanding a steeper and steeper discount, or higher and higher interest, to purchase that government's bonds. But if that government later becomes more stable, bond traders may be willing to pay closer and closer to par value for the same bond. Sometimes, bonds can even go over par. That means traders are willing to pay more than the bond's official value in order to secure its interest payments. For example, if the French government is offering 5% bonds, but no other available investment is paying more than 4%, you might maximize your cash flow by overpaying for this 5% bond, rather than accepting a lower yield elsewhere. It might also help to know that in this period, French government bonds were called rents. That's like the word rents, but with an E. British bonds were called consoles, short for consolidated annuities. That's a lot, and it oversimplifies things, but that should leave you in a better position to follow this fascinating discussion. As always, you can visit thesiecla.com supplemental18 for a full transcript of this episode. Now, enjoy the interview. Tyson Luchter, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much for having me. I've been trying to get Tyson on the show for literally years now. Uh, this seemed like the, the perfect opportunity because Tyson's specialty is the history of French financial capitalism. We just talked about the French economy in the most recent scripted episode of the Siècle. So Tyson, before we get into the topic itself, talk a little bit about why financial capitalism interests you and what, how you got into this topic. Sure, sure. Thank you. So broadly speaking, uh, I'm an intellectual historian of economic life. Um, which means, you know, I take, uh, you know, a kind of intellectual history approach to, to quantitative life, uh, to the world of, uh, of economic, uh, of the economy. Uh, and I'm particularly interested uh, in French financial capitalism. My current book project looks uh, at the 1789 revolutionary period until 1825, focusing on the Paris Stock Exchange and public debts. So what I've argued uh, in places like my article, Finance Beyond the Bounds of the Fiscal Military State in French History, and that book I'm currently wor working on, the 1789 to 1825 period witnesses a kind of intellectual reconstitution of French financial capitalism. And I, I'm really interested in the people who made this economic reality uh, in the marketplace, in the courtroom, and on the trading floor, which is why I look at the Paris Stock Exchange, stockbrokers, pamphleteers, grumpy creditors, and devious debtors. Uh, and so on. I find I find these guys fascinating uh, and a lot of fun. I like to read the sort of the high theoretical stuff too, but I'm interested in the sort of the intellectual composition of the grounds of financial reality. And I do think there's something distinctively post-revolutionary about the way that public debts and politics become intertwined in this period. You know, it's discussed much less as supporting the state's ability to project force and much more as enabling an individual to thrive economically. Let's start out with just a broad overview for listeners. What did finance look like in the Restoration? It was obviously really important, but it was similar but different in some ways what people today think of uh, finance as looking like. Tell us about sort of the broad strokes of what we're talking about here. Sure thing. So the single biggest thing to know about finance during the Restoration uh, is the paradoxical reboot of French finances after the post-Napoleonic settlement. Uh, as your listeners may remember from early episodes, 
uh, or maybe from Christine Kane's really terrific work here, the Allied powers levied this gigantic uh, war indemnity and imposed the cost of military occupation on the Young Restoration regime. The total amount of that is around 1.4 billion fr uh, francs. That's a staggering sum. And France pays it almost entirely by borrowing from the Dutch and English banking world. Um, but what's really startling, what's sort of distinctive, I think, about uh, the, sort of the broad picture uh, of restoration finances is how effective France is at paying it off and how quickly restoration France switches from importing capital to pay off these so-called liberation loans to exporting capital in foreign investments. Uh, Rondo Cameron, for instance, estimates that there's around 550 million francs in total foreign investment for the restoration period, which is really impressive uh, for a regime that had so recently experienced military defeat. Uh, you know, and that shows up in a couple of different ways, this sort of this reboot of finances and the sort of quick turnaround uh, of France's uh, broad financial picture. Yields on the long-term French public debt, and that's roughly the interest rate uh, on French debt. They started around 9% in 1815, which is quite high, uh, but they steadily come down. Uh, and by 1824, um, they're just a smidge about 4%, uh, which is about the same uh, as the Dutch perpetual debt, and maybe only a percentage point higher, let's say. Uh, than the British consul. So that's really that's really impressive. And just to put that in context for people, states at this time had to pay much higher interest rates on their debt when investors were less willing to buy it on their own merits. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So the higher the yield, generally speaking, uh, the sort of the more risky government debt looks. Lower yields means uh, investors are accepting a lower payout for a secure investment. Uh, my favorite example uh, of this re uh, reboot uh, is actually an anecdote from the French politician and polymath, uh, Brias Savarin. Now, this guy is supposedly coined the term, you are what you eat, and he also lends his name to a really just absolutely terrific uh, triple cream cheese. I can't recommend it highly enough. Anyways, he claimed that French food was just so darn good, particularly in Paris, that the war indemnity was actually paid down uh, in just a few years because the armies of occupation, just, they just could not help but stuff themselves at dinner. Uh, now, it's a fun story, but it's almost certainly apocryphal. Uh, at the same time, Briat Savarin is writing this in 1825. Um, so it does suggest that there's a kind of a socially palpable sense that French public finances had rebounded and rebounded well. So what does that look like at, at the sort of the more sort of investor picture, uh, for instance? What it suggests is that there's a large but apparently pretty reliable stock of public debt to trade at the Paris Exchange. And that's mostly what people do trade. Um, public debt, mostly the 5% rent, uh, which is a 5%, let's say, it's annuity, a 5% bond, uh, is the major uh, investment vehicle. That's the thing that's taking up most people's activity. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for this. There's a kind of uh, sort of French propensity uh, for public debt. And there are also very few listed private stocks at this stage. The restoration does not see a whole lot of uh, joint stock companies. There are only a couple early on, and they're mainly insurance and canal companies. And it isn't really until the explosion of the railroads in the 1830s that the equity landscape really expands. What kind of people were investing in stocks, these rent? Who was buying them and, and for what purposes? That's a great question. And uh, again, like all, like all good historians, I'm going to tell you that the answer is complicated. We can say that during the restoration, the market was still pretty pricey uh, as far as things go at a sort of a, a broad level. The absolute minimum purchase uh, for the 5% bond, the 5% rent, uh, was for an inscription with a face value of 50 francs. And that's not chump change by itself. Uh, and that's the absolute minimum. And, and a lot of the materials I've looked at, I've regularly seen transactions in the hundreds of thousands or even millions of francs. So in one sense, the major folks participating in the Paris financial market, which is the, the main place where public debt is traded, uh, we're dealing with a social and financial elite. 
At the same time, if you sort of drill down a little bit, the picture gets a little bit more complicated. We do know uh, that there really was a rising public interest uh, in investing in French funds. So for instance, in 1800, uh, there may be no more than 10,000 individual holders of public debt inscriptions. By 1830, there are more than maybe 190,000. So that's a dramatic increase. Those are back of the envelope figures, um, but clearly there is a, you know, a, a spike uh, in public interest. And also who exactly owned the debt, who could actually afford to buy into it, and who was involved in the market didn't necessarily always line up exactly. You could assign the revenue stream from a debt inscription to someone else. Uh, and I've seen instances where people peel off the interest payments on their own uh, debt holdings, and they assign them to elderly parents or relatives. It's almost a kind of pension uh, or old age wage supplement. People of more modest means could and did, not necessarily at the rate of you know, the, the social elite or financial elite, they could and did participate uh, in the market, usually as the, in the aims of maintaining a very slow, you know, a modest payout, um, but a safe one, one that you could actually rely upon. Uh, so forgive me for punning here a little bit. Uh, you invested in the securities market for a little bit of security. I remember being really struck reading uh, some of the fiction of the time, especially Balzac's realist fiction, and the way that uh, you know the plots and the character descriptions are just marinated in references to finance. Mm -hmm. The opening chapter of uh, Balzac's Pergorio introduces almost all the characters by talking about how much they uh, own in rent and uh, how much they take in. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, there are a lot of reasons uh, for that. One is, you know, again, think of the relatively constrained number of things you could actually invest in. Uh, it's French public debt and then other nations' public debt uh, as well. Not so much uh, in, in the restoration, at least. Uh, equity is what we might call stocks today. And so given this sort of this rising activity, it's going to glom on uh, to the rent. And especially the, the way that uh, the rent uh, investing in the public debt market can kind of ramify uh, through the social uh, sphere, uh, then you get more and more people interested in it. It takes up this, uh, this really sort of you know, real estate, if you will, uh, in, the, in the social brain. And it's fun too, to think about the sort of the drama, let's say the dramatic scene of what financial intermediation actually was like. People described it uh, at the time as you know, almost literal pandemonium, people yelling and shouting at each other. Uh, I have or I sell uh, would, be the, would be the phrasing. Um, so it's both sort of, uh, sort of socially and physically dramatic in the scene, uh, but then also it sort of spreads out to touch um, people beyond this sort of relatively thin band in 1800 to a much wider band uh, of society by the time of the restoration. One of the things that I've been struck by you know, reading historical accounts of the, the various events that I've covered in the show is you know after describing some big political crisis, a historian will often contextualize it by saying the Paris stock market went down three percent or uh, went up two percent or something like that as a sort of a way of characterizing it, like how the public was reacting or a certain important share of the public. Can you talk a little bit uh, or give maybe give a couple examples of how finance was impacting some of these major political events of the Restoration period? Sure. So. Uh, a lot of this is, I think, due to the dominance uh, of, of trade in the public debt, uh, not only France, but mainly France in this period. Uh, and since, you know, as you were talking uh, just a, a minute ago, that the yield on the debt is a rough kind of political uh, judgment. It's, it's sometimes called a kind of a financialized political judgment. Investors uh, basically saying how much or how little they trusted the government to actually make its payments. Uh, and so political events uh, uh, often had a sort of a very big effect uh, on fluctuations uh, in the debt. It's not necessarily one-to-one. -one. There are a lot of reasons why you might buy uh, or sell a debt, um, but it does uh, really have um, a major uh, effect. 
My, I think perhaps the signature uh, example of sort of politics and finance, one would be surely the emigre indemnity. Uh, I believe you've sort of uh, touched on this in previous episodes. Now you have uh, what's sometimes called two types of property, people who owned uh, the Bien Nacional, uh, former property of the immigrant, and now the immigrant themselves. Uh, Villel, the prime minister, wants to sort of close this last wound of the revolution, and he does so by trying to issue new debt. The finance behind this uh, is that France, uh, uh, the public debt at the time that he's doing this, uh, is actually above par value for a little while. It suggests that it could actually receive better terms. Uh, it could actually accept a or receive a lower rate of interest from the market were it to refinance uh, its debt. So there's a kind of financial drive in addition to a social one. In fact, the two are, I think, really connected uh, for, for Fidel uh, in the emigre uh, indemnity. He both wants to close this last wound of the revolution to sort of finally purify property of any lingering uh, competing claims, but also save the French state uh, a nice chunk of change. And it turns out he's sort of storing up two hornet's nests there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, he really he really steps in, in both at the same time. Doesn't work out uh, all that great. Current bondholders are not at all happy at uh, having their interest payments forcibly reduced. Uh, so he has to actually step down and make it a voluntary conversion rather than a forced one. This doesn't necessarily even help him that much. Uh, it goes down as the emigre's billion uh, and it's actually sort of very effective political mobilization, this idea that you're sort of financializing uh, claims and just sending money to the emigre at the cost of uh, good French property owners uh, who had bought from the revolution. That's very effective political mobilization into the 1860s and 70s. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern whales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Some of the most important political figures during the Restoration were bankers or otherwise involved in finance. People like Jacques Lafitte, Casimir Perrier, Villel, of course, the famous prime minister, was a, sort of came to prominence as a sort of financial administrator. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of these famous names and the ways in which finance was driving their wealth and political participation and, and things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, let me focus on, on Jacques Lafitte, actually, because he's, he's one of my favorites here. Uh, again, if you'll forgive uh, the punning, some wags would call him Jacques Lafayette, uh, which is a pun on bankruptcy in French, because he almost declares bankruptcy during the Restoration. He's actually a liberal deputy, an extremely wealthy person. Uh, the world of uh, these, uh, something called the, the haute banque, the high bank uh, in France at the time is pretty circumscribed. It's a very tight social network. Banking as a whole is very thin on the ground until the 1830s and 1840s. Um, so these folks all know each other. Um, they all have a lot of wealth. They can all sort of rise through the ranks or sort of enter the formal political world. And Lafitte himself actually intervenes in interesting ways in the immigrant indemnity uh, debate that uh, we were just talking about. He pens a pamphlet in support of Villel's plan, which is striking. Uh, Villel is deeply conservative. Uh, Lafitte is a liberal. So he's crossing political lines here. And he's doing this because he thinks that refinancing France's public debt, uh, increasing the public debt load, 
is actually going to help send capital into the countryside. He has this very interesting sort of uh, social theory, a uh, political economy of debt, where uh, public debt credit functions as a kind of mediating term between capital and labor. And he's very, very concerned that capital is really scarce on the countryside in the provinces and interest rates are very, very high. And he thinks this is stopping national unity. Uh, he says literally, you know, it's impossible to see France in the countryside. You only see it in the big cities um, because that's where interest rates are relatively modest. That's where investment can happen. Uh, and so if we follow Villel's plan, if we refinance the debt, we will send public debt inscriptions into the countryside. We'll unify these rural counties uh, to the literal capital, uh, through capital uh, in Paris. We'll drive down the interest rate. We'll produce development and investment. So his familiarity uh, with things like banking uh, and finance, the ins and outs, uh, figuring interest rates uh, and so on, is really driving both his ability to cross political aisles, but also his political program, I think, uh, writ large. But also uh, helping to fund a lot of his political activities. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. He's he's not above uh, uh, doing that at all. He's one of the major underwriters for a lot of major public debts and loans. And, you know, in some of these pamphlets, he has to add a little disclaimer saying like, yes, I am one of the underwriters for this. I will make a lot of money, but I assure you, trust me, this is not influencing what I'm about to tell you at all. We've talked a lot about French public finance, but of course, fr France was only one of the countries at the time that had a financialized system. Can you talk about how France was different from other countries at the time, and I think especially uh, Great Britain? France uh, and Britain are the two uh, financial centers uh, of the time. Uh, they eclipse uh, Amsterdam. France eclipses Amsterdam. Uh, and this is and it takes a long time uh, for uh, the United States, New York especially, to really climb to uh, to first position. So in terms of the difference in the financial world, Britain has a much more robust equities landscape. There are more sort of private industrial ventures. Uh, and that's not really necessarily a surprise. Britain's population is exploding at this time. France remains relatively flat. Uh, for a long time, uh, there had been this view that sort of France was something of an economic laggard, though uh, for a while now, we sort of know that if you look at per capita figures, uh, France's economy actually looks quite good. In terms of the financial world in particular, I think uh, looking at the Paris Stock Exchange is really interesting. So the Paris Stock Exchange is a monopoly corporation. And that's really odd in the post-revolutionary world. Corporations, the sort of the private core uh, of the old regime, had supposedly all been demolished during the revolution as a way of getting rid of any intermediary body standing in between the private citizen uh, and the state. But a few survive, and the stockbrokers uh, of Paris uh, are one of them. They have exclusive rights for um, financial intermediation in the public debt in Paris. So they really are a, a, a monopoly. And moreover, there aren't very many of them. There are 60 total stockbrokers uh, for Paris to intermediate the entirety uh, of public debt transactions uh, in Paris. And that's quite different than uh, a lot of other uh, nations where there are quite a bit more stockbrokers. Also quite interesting is that these stockbrokers essentially have offices, almost like a venal office during uh, the old regime. What we might call their seat licenses, their ability to trade uh, in the public debt in Paris, was a kind of business property. So what would happen is that you would normally have a kind of a silent investor, a uh, silent partner, investing with the actual stockbroker. So the silent partner, the stockbroker, together would pool their capital uh, and they would purchase these seat licenses and then split up the profits depending on the share of capital that went to it. And these were very, very expensive. These contracts for the office of stockbroker, the ability to, again, to intermediate public debt, they could go for easily hundreds of thousands or over a million uh, francs. 
And more than that, after 1816, uh, the Restoration actually grants to the stockbrokers the right to name their successors. So it's a, a very tight-knit social circle. And you get these essentially almost uh, hereditary lines of stockbrokers being passed down either from father to son um, or within a tight social network. So it's a very insular uh, and sort of almost uh, private world. Whereas the British financial scene was much more freewheeling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To what degree were these sort of new developments in, in French financial capitalism over this time driven by changes in mindset, changes in intellectual conceptions of money and the role of the state and how they, they intertwined? Were people thinking about debt and speculation differently under the Bourbon Restoration than they were under Napoleon or the Ancien Regime? I think it's a kind of a, a longish process that begins during the, the revolution and continues through Napoleon into the Restoration. It certainly is, I think, different than what happened, uh, the sort of the mindset under uh, the old regime. And uh, the post-revolutionary context is really, really important here. We might think here of some of the uh, major milestones the French Revolution, the demolition of legal privilege, uh, so the establishment of legal equality, uh, and the great simplification of property rights into something like uh, modern private property. And that is paired, I think, on one of the things I'm trying to argue, with something of a fallow period uh, in formal empire during the Restoration. What does that all mean? There is a sort of very different relationship between uh, the state and the citizen in terms of transacting in the public debt. If you're an investor in the public debt, it's less to fund imperial competition. France and Britain are you know, in peaceable relations at this stage. And it's much more in terms of transacting with private property as a way to make your way, to make your mark, to socially navigate the social world of the restoration regime. So financial speculation, you know, which is perennially controversial, gets defended uh, uh, and gets separated, or they try to separate it intellectually from gambling as just, you know, a relatively everyday private property interaction. Yes, it's very abstract and complicated given the nature of finance, but when you get down to it, it isn't that different. Um, people like the stockbrokers, people like uh, creditors and debtors will argue in court, uh, some pamphleteers will argue. It's not that different than, you know, contracting uh, someone to sell someone, you know, a, a barrel of wine in a couple of months. That's not that different than a futures contract. So. What I think that means is that you have this developing sense that uh, what the state is trying to do is create the rules such that something like economic growth can happen, um, something that these individual private interactions, even in finance, can redound to the public good. This is somewhat embryonic, somewhat haphazard, and it's always controversial. Um, but that, I think, uh, is a kind of the political change in mindset, the intellectual and political valence of finance at the time. The big topic that the podcast narrative is covering right now is France's late 20s economic recession, which is tied up in some hard to disentangle way from the political crisis that the Bourbon Restoration entered in the late 1820s. What was the role of finance in these economic troubles that were hitting France and other parts of Europe as well in, at the end of this decade? Let me actually roll it back a little bit to, let's say, 1825, if that's okay, because there is uh, the first really big global public debt crash in 1825, uh, you know, and that originates uh, in a series of failed public debt speculation in Latin America. It strikes Britain first, but the contagion spreads. And there's also a global crash in commodity prices around the same time. 
that can have somewhat ironic or almost counterintuitive effects since the crash in commodity prices can actually send investors back to more stable securities, like uh, what you perceive as a safe public debt. And so interestingly, French bonds actually decline after 1825, which is to say that uh, investors think that French uh, public debt is actually a safe investment. It suggests that they're moving money into the public debt accepting a lower payout, uh, a lower rate of interest in return for security. Now, that might not necessarily be such a bad thing, uh, since, and this is something, as we were mentioning, that Lafitte was really, uh, really keen on, lower yields on the French public debt could actually help exert downwards pressure on other interest rates, making investment cheaper, uh, so hopefully spurring development. The big problem, though, is that depends upon growing capital supply and healthy economic demand, which is exactly what gets smashed by the national crisis of the late 1820s. And yields on the public debt do spike. It, uh, it seems much, much more risky by late 1829 and 1830. So that sort of economic crisis that you were talking about it shows up in uh, the financial market too, uh, sometimes in, in deadly ways. There's a wave of bankruptcies uh, and uh, a stock market is actually driven to suicide. So the financial world and the you know what is sometimes called the real economy, they're deeply connected, but the connection isn't always uh, linear. We've talked about how the uh, the yield on the French public debt was related to people's confidence in the regime in a certain sense, that you know how risky the investment seemed, how, how likely it seemed that the country would, would default on its debts. So do we see, like, for example, when someone unpopular like Jules de Polignac gets appointed, do, do the bonds react in a way that the investors seem to think that Polignac's appointment makes French bonds a more risky investment? So it depends on uh, how far you want to zoom in or zoom out. Um, because you know, trading could be really furious uh, at the Paris Stock Exchange, and people are very, very keen to integrate as much information as possible. There's a lovely guide to investors, uh, I believe from the 1820s, that says it's describing the, the ideal day of an investor. And he says, what you have to do is you got to wake up early, read all the newspapers, so you get all the information. But then as you're walking to the Paris Stock Exchange, you got to keep your ears open. You want to hear all the, the scuttlebutt, all the rumors uh, that maybe haven't made it into the print yet. And then when you finally enter the Paris Stock Exchange, send your orders to your stockbroker. Then you'll have as complete a picture of the day's events as possible. So day's events, political events could move prices. They absolutely could. But if you zoom out, a lot of times those fluctuations will get smoothed out. So there can be a kind of a yearly downwards trend or a yearly upwards trend or something like that. Financial markets will react to political appointments. But if that doesn't immediately trigger a crisis or a revolution or something, then oftentimes they will there'll be a kind of a, you know, we might call a market correction uh, that will then smooth out uh, what was now perceived as an overreaction. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation. Tyson Luther, can you uh, tell people a little bit about uh, where they can find your research and uh, where they can follow you? Thank you. Yes. You know, I've written a few articles. Um, I have an article in French history, Finance Beyond the Bounds of the Fiscal Military State, Modern Intellectual History, The Illimitable Rights, uh, and La Revolution Francaise on uh, the new regime of corporate property. And I'm also working on a book uh, that uh, I hope will come out within the next uh, year or so uh, on this uh, broad topic, 1789 to 1825, on public debts in the Paris Stock Exchange. Tyson Lukter, thank you for your time and uh, your insights, and thank you for coming on the SIECLA. Thanks very much. I've had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you remember the teaser reel at the start of the episode, there is an upcoming event on November 4th, 2023, called Intelligent Speech. It's an online one-day conference for history fans by history podcasters. I've participated in this event for years, and will be one of dozens of great presenters giving talks this year. This year's theme is Contingencies, 
When History Meets the Backup Plan. And I'll be speaking about Louis-Philippe, the Duc d'Orléans, the human backup plan for the Bourbon Restoration, whether the Bourbons wanted it or not. Tickets for Intelligent Speech cost $30, but you can get 10% off by using the coupon code SIECLE at checkout. That's S-I-E-C-L-E. You can find more about the 2023 Intelligent Speech Conference at intelligentspeechonline.com. I hope to see many of you there on November 4th. My thanks to Heather Hewson for transcribing this interview, and to Robin Beasley for providing editorial assistance to the last episode. Thank you especially to my own band of Jacques Lafitte's, who support the Siecla financially. Unlike restoration stockbrokers, you can join this August company for far less than 1 million francs. The latest patrons to pledge as little as $1 per month on Patreon are Giselle, Jason Stanley, Carl Bialik, Noel Martoyou, James Breckenridge, Ellen Harold, and Desart. My thanks also to Jim, who made a one-time donation on Ko-Fi. They, and all supporters on Patreon, receive an ad-free feed. You can find out more about how to support the show online at thesiecla.com support. In the meantime, the next episode will switch gears from public debt to cannibal deaths. Join me next time on board a doomed frigate for a tour of the Bourbon Restoration's tiny colonial empire in episode 36, Wreck of the Medusa. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.